A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirits will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will feed together and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will teach, will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on the holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations will seek him out, and his dwelling will be glorious. Thanks, David. You guys pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for this word that you spoke through the prophets, uh, that you filled with your spirit, and that you're still speaking and filling for us. Uh, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, did a lot of Google internet research for this sermon. Um, Mostly related around movies with happy endings and um, like happily ever after style movies and most of my Google research, I'm pretty good at Google research by the way, uh, yielded like lists of, of movies that exhibit this, this trait or you might even call them a sub genre. And I'd be curious um, to know, and, and we can do this pretty economically and not dwell here, but some of, some of your favorite movies with a happy ending. Um, first that popped to mind. Harry Met Sally. Harry Met Sally, good. You've got mail, good. Tangled, Tangled wonderful. Excellent. We were already getting pretty dark because it's like it wasn't a ha- it wasn't a happy ending for Mufasa, you know. Um, but uh, okay, that that's good enough for now. We can continue this line of inquiry during our potluck meal. <laughs> um, you guys, none of you guys were seeds for that question, but you kind of proved the point of my vast Google Internet research that most happy endings. Uh, most movies with happy endings that have something in common. Uh, Many of them are romantic comedies and they have something in common a little beyond like the presence of Matthew McConaughey which many of those movies have. Uh, That's like the the sub-subgenre, like the micro-genre, right? The rom-com with Matthew McConaughey. But these movies, like the arc in these movies has to bend pretty low to make the ending that much more great and hopeful and 
and wonderful. Like it seems like the floor is lowered so that the ceiling can be raised. So somewhere around like the 80 minute mark of most of these movies, it all falls apart. It doesn't seem like it can be put back together. Usually there's then after that, there's like this denouement like sequence where like a person listlessly looks out the window of their office building while their colleague drones on and they can't hear it anymore. Or they glance at old photos while they pack up boxes to move back home. Or they like joylessly sip their coffee as they get on public transit and navigate life alone, <laughs> surrounded by others. But then, but then something happens. Like a revelation happens or like a supernatural injection of courage and maybe the love interest shows back up much like Will showed up with his djembe drum during rehearsals today. And barges in and makes some bold declaration of love in public and what once was all dark is all the more bright because of it and they live happily ever after. That's how most of these movies go. Sorry if I spoiled most of those movies. But something about this arc, this deep low followed by like this triumphant hopeful high, something about that I think is also written into like our national story in Psyche too. Like this is part of the narrative that we sing and that we rehearse this time of year and, and before sport, sporting events and stuff. Like consider like the Francis Key Scott lyrics after witnessing this devastating bombardment of Fort Henry and, and then you have these, these lyrics, through the perilous light, or the ramparts, there's rockets glaring and bombs bursting, and then there's proof through the night. What? Right, exactly. There's, there's still hope for victory. In fact, that victory is all the more sweet because of how dark we were. These are powerful narratives that pull really strongly at our hearts and like form us deeply. Consider how upsetting it is when you're single and that hope of, of l true love that you see in these movies seems more like mere fiction and fantasy, like it can be really upsetting. Or perhaps when you thought you were living your happily ever after and then there's more ellipses after that and, and how dark, you know, like how, how you're maybe in a, a loveless engagement or how like, there's no hope for love after that. Like these are, these are really common tropes for what it means to hope. You know, uh, consider, consider also how, like when our national narrative gets threatened or disruptive, how, how like our hackles go up over that, right? Like things aren't exactly how you always thought they were or they should be and then someone takes a knee and like interrupts and tries to wake up to the fact that you're not what you like were trying to live up to this dream this experiment that we hope for or, or th that these wonderful hopes of lady lady liberty who like lady liberty is known as the quote unquote mother of exiles like sh that the rest of that poem that we always recite is that she's hoping for a golden door for the homeless in the tempest tossed. What happens when those homeless and tempest tossed get tossed back or torn asunder or drowned at our border towns? It's this territory 
of, of these like dashed narratives of love and of liberty. It's this territory of exiles and prophetic outrage, which the biblical prophet Isaiah is all too familiar with. Jerusalem is destroyed. Assyria is riding high and everything is up for grabs. All of God's people's plans are in the wind. And if you go back a few chapters prior, we're we're introduced with this prophetic image of an axe. (laughs) An axe comes in, and as prophetic images go, there's always a little bit of ambiguity on who's doing the chopping, whether it's the Lord or Assyria. Maybe they're taking turns. All we know is that once there was a vision and a hope for flourishing and triumph, and now there's just a stump of what was and what will never be again. Where there was once a people who'd number greater than the grains of the sand on the seashore and the stars of the sky. That's what Abraham was told. Now there was just a remnant, scattered. Where there once was a people gathered by God whose main distinctive was the covenant faithfulness of God and the covenant faithfulness back to God. Now Israel was just another nation trying to do whatever they had to do to keep existing. They'd kind of swing from twin impulses. This is the story of most of the Old Testament. Twin impulses of fear and self-protection on one end and, and of lavish, unjust living that they trampled on the poor on the other end. Seems like all these chickens have come to roost and an axe has been laid to the root of it all. And Isaiah speaks as a prophet, filled with the Spirit, speaking for the Lord to God's people. Notice those two words always have to be in the prophetic job description, God and people. As Abraham Heschel reminds us, a prophet's true greatness is his ability to hold God and man in a single thought. To hold God and man in a single thought. With the same thought, a prophet considers how worship and faithfulness to God hits the ground in real lives and communities and how life with neighbors must always be an outpouring of God's mercy and grace towards everything that is not God. So Isaiah stands firmly in the midst of Israel. That's, that's a big deal. Because he's not some outsider just like lobbing criticism. He's also not just like tweeting at the problem, right? He's standing right in the middle of Israel as someone deeply invested in Israel's future. Remember that the next time you hear someone standing in some sort of prophetic role, maybe even if you're in that prophetic role, and Jesus reminds us as one fulfilling the law and the prophets uh, in all of which they hang on, that prophets typically aren't received in their own land and are often killed for their message. Prophet is not a glorious, honorable title. So somehow these prophets, what Isaiah is doing here, He's acting as both some sort of like protester and a patriot. Isn't that weird how like we don't have a category for that really in our society. You're either on one side or the other and you're strung out between these two poles. Somehow Isaiah is both a protester and a patriot and hardly ever just one or the other. Like his protest is born out of his deep love for his people and the Lord and their deep implication in in Israel's sin. Like, when Isaiah speaks God's judgment, he's also speaking it on himself. He's, he's part of the we. 
first person. It's not third person. And it's also born out of a deep vision of renewal in the Lord. And then a prophet's patriotism is never the sort of nationalism with it, which excludes or acts out of fear or places their beloved nation above reproach. It's never their true love because if, if their nation was their true love, that would be idolatry, and the prophet knows that. I think this sort of rubric would really thin out our field of people speaking prophetically if, if we made people be both prophets and patriots. It also clarify and calibrate our ability to like hold these two things together. Every criticism is not treason and every show of national pride is not jingoism. Like we need prophets to show us how to hold these two together. Otherwise we just rely on people to, to tell us this vision and normally they're partisans and marketers, right? And, and we've had examples of this, right? Think of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., maybe our best example of a modern American prophet, one that, that like there's people walking around that have met him. There's people in Durham that, that have known him. Of course, he was killed <laughs> for his message of hope, for an integrated and beloved community fleshing out many of the very characteristics and values our country claims to expose expouse, like life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness for all. But at times he was also considered to be a traitor for some of his critical views on the way our country fails to, to live up to these very ideals. Like a year before he was murdered, he gave a sermon in, in which he, he talked about our involvement in the Vietnam War, nuclear escalation, treatment of women, rampant consumerism, our ability to care for our own poor, let alone our neighbors around the world. Like this is his quote from 1967. When machines and computers profit, uh, when, when machines and computers profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. And then a year later, like, these aren't the quotes that you see on memes for Dr. Martin Luther King normally. Um, these are pretty critical, but also really prescient to what we're doing right now, what we're struggling with. And a year to the day after that sermon, Dr. King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. So enter Isaiah 11 in this prophetic spirit, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse and a branch will sprout from his roots. This, this, this is good fodder for kids' songs and Christmas hymns, right? A rose from the concrete is what this is saying. A way where there was previously no way. But this isn't some generic hope that things are just going to get better. This is, this is concrete. This is hope in a person, someone who'd lead God's people back to God. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is not just an excited spirit who puts the paddles to a lifeless body and jump starts it with electricity, but this is also a wise and a patient spirit, a spirit which rests and resides on this Messiah, not flitting or fleeting. It's a spirit of understanding and of planning, of consideration of what God wants and what God has always wanted for this world and, and also how to make it happen. 
After all, this is a spirit who was there at the beginning, at the building, at the drafting of the blueprints, at the, when the footers were being poured and the foundations of this world were being established. There before even the creation of a good and abundant and worship-filled world, this good, abundant, and love-filled triune community of God existed. No wonder the needy will be judged with righteousness and those who suffer in the land will be decided for with equity. Righteousness and equity were written by the Spirit. They're stock and trade for someone filled with the Spirit. Righteousness and faithfulness encircle this spirit leader like a belt. They hold this Messiah together even as the Messiah is holding this all together. And from there you start to see the shape developing. We talked about this in our worship planning meeting this week that like the shape of this passage in Isaiah 11 is a lot like the shape of our mission statement for Oak Church in Isaiah 61. Uh, same body of prophetic literature, but uh, you have this, these themes and this movement of hope and healing and hospitality, and those are, those are words that you'll hear us talk about a lot. But perhaps the most strange and interesting part of this passage is that the healing and the hospitality, how they happen. These healing and the hospitality spills out from the spirit-filled Christ into creation by creating like a zoological collage. Like, have you seen this at the end of, of the passage? This is really strange stuff. It should blow your minds, and frankly, it should make many of the parents in this room very nervous that a wolf and a lamb are hanging out, a leopard and a goat, a calf and a lion cub, and they're all led by a little kid, and they're all playing with snakes. Like, that is the story. And here, here's a, a really great image in the 19th century from a Quaker minister, Edward Hicks, called the Peaceable Kingdom. And you can see those cherub, like little babies, hanging out in this amazing zoo scene that no zookeeper would ever imagine, right? A couple observations. <laughs> for this to happen, for this to even be imaginable, the predator and the prey need to be together. Like, that's really weird, right? Like, this is not a particularly safe vision for the prey, right? Generations of fear have been wisely bred into the lamb not to go anywhere near a wolf. Like, for this to happen, the lamb's fear needs to be laid aside. I don't know how to do this or even ask this of a lamb if I knew a lamb. Like, <laughs> like, this is the vision, lamb. Like, this is where we're going. Let's live this inbreaking kingdom now. Let's seek out some wolves. Go. Head towards NC State, yes. <clears throat> like, I, I am not really sure how that happens. But also, if that's threatening to the prey, that's threatening to the lamb, you're also asking the predator to be threatened and challenged to take up an entirely new way of life. A whole new cuisine, a whole new outlook. Like whereas most of the lion's life was spent stalking prey, now it's gonna be spent like butting up to the ox and 
asking for tips on where the best straw grows. Like, that's now what the lion is doing. Again, this is crazy. Can you imagine, like, a lion's teeth being filed down flat because now they no longer need to hunt? Right now they chew grass. Like, for the prophet, the key question becomes, can you imagine that? Like, that's what Isaiah is doing. That's what I'm doing today. That's what is happening to me as I'm reading this. Is saying, can you imagine that? Another observation. Children playing over snake holes seems very reckless. Again, though, the vision, <laughs> when we were reading this, Meg's like, uh, a nursing child and a uh, not nursing child. So she's like, oh, so that is like Simeon and that is like Sam, you know, like really contextualizing. We read scripture really well around here. Simeon is not playing near any copperhead holes, right? But again, though, this is the vision for the renewal of Israel. And ironically, it involves a radical, like, unprotectiveness for Israel. It is connected closely also to the reversal of Adam and Eve's fall. If we remember that story, whereas they colluded with a serpent to exploit power and knowledge and put distance between God and humanity, the spirit king is going to dismantle and de-escalate these antagonisms, even where the most like, iconic and dramatic rivalry then becomes like a play date. Isn't that crazy? Like That is nuts. Can you imagine that? And finally, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations will seek him out, and his dwelling will be glorious. Pay attention to the fact that this root and this shoot and this branch goes back and reclaims God's people even before David. The promise was that the Messiah would be in the line of David, and this reclamation project reaches back even further. Before David's sin, before David's violence and bloodshed to the original intent. And then, so it reaches back, and then it also reaches forward into this inclusive and neighbor-loving and hospitable future. The nations, everyone who is not part of God's people, those previously not included in God's promises, most of the people in this room will seek God out and his dwelling will be glorious. Paul takes this message up at the end of Romans in chapter 15 saying, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you and in order to bring praise to God. And then a few verses later, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul's on to something here, hope by the Spirit even right after he quotes this passage from Isaiah 11. You can just see how hope-filled and peaceable this work of the Spirit is in Jesus, the root of Jesse. Overflowing with hope by the Spirit, carving out a new and surprising future of peace. But not just like some sort of saccharine world of order, like a wild and subversive world where all of the assumptions about protection and about violence and power are flipped on their heads. We need to learn to be like peaceable. Like it's a very active thing and uh, maybe even a generational thing. 
been given the Spirit for this lifelong, maybe like eternity-long pursuit. Can you imagine that? So I, w- I want to shift to another prophetic story. If we, if we have time, I'll, I'll try to go fast. Because it's just, like, you can't talk about the Spirit and the prophets without talking about Ezekiel 37 and what's happening here. So I'll, I'll read it real fast and then we'll finish up. Um, but I, I would... Uh, advise you this week to read um, Ezekiel 37, uh, the first 14 verses on your own, and, and, and pray through it, and just like start to imagine that. It says, the Lord's power overcame me, and while I was in the Lord's spirit, again spirit, he led me out and set me down in the middle of a certain valley. It was full of bones. He led me through uh, them all around, and I saw where a great many of them were on the valley floor, and they were very dry. Good detail there. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live again? I said, Lord God, only you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the Lord's word. The Lord God proclaims to these bones, I am able to put breath in you, and you will live again. I will put sinews on you, put flesh on you, cover you with skin. And when I put breath in you, you will come to life. You will know that I am the Lord. I prophesied just as I was commanded. There was a great noise as I was prophesying. Then a great quaking and the bones came together, bone by bone. When I looked, suddenly there were sinews on them. The flesh appeared and they were all covered with skin, but there was still no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, the Lord God proclaims, come from the four winds, breath, breathe into these dead bodies and let them live. I prophesied just as he commanded me. When the breath entered them, they came to life and stood on their feet, an extraordinarily large company. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the entire house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely finished. So now prophesy and say to them, the Lord God proclaims, I'm opening your graves. I will raise you up from your graves, my people, and I will bring you into Israel's fertile land. You will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, my people. Put my breath in you and you will live plant you on the fertile land, and you will know that I am the Lord. I've spoken, and I'll do it. This is what the Lord says. There's this amazing uh, painting from an artist, a New Zealand artist. You can put that up, Jim. Uh, Colin McKay in the Valley of the Dry Bones. Uh, and, and that was painted just in the, in the wake of, the, of World War II. Like our story from Isaiah... Israel, as represented in that valley of dry, dry bones, like dry bones means they were dead for a long time, without hope. But God breathes the spirit into them, connects with, again, the spirit of planning and renewal, connects sinews and cartilage and flesh and muscle and skin and hair to create a new humanity from the four corners, the whole house of Israel, where they once said our bones are dried up and our hope has perished, we're completely finished. I'm sure you can imagine this. But now, 
even in their non-being of death, these bones can hear God and God speaks loudly and clearly. I'm opening your graves. I will raise you up from your graves, my people, and I'll bring you into the fertile land. You'll know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, my people. I'll put my breath in you and you'll live. Luke Powery says, hope is generated by experiencing death through the Spirit, who's the ultimate source of hope. Again, it's the Spirit in hope. Even death through the Spirit brings hope in life. Even hope in death. Can you imagine that? I hope you can, because this is a story that we've been called into in Christ Jesus. The Son of God, the Son of Man, representing all humanity, reconstituting and reconfiguring Israel, God's Son, and calling God's people around him so that God's dwelling might be glorious. It's Jesus who through his death beat the bloody cross into a plowshare of the new creation. It's Jesus rested upon by this hope-filling, peaceable spirit who just as he died also resurrected. Resurrected instead of us, resurrected for us, resurrected with us as the first fruits of this resurrection so that we might rise up like these dry bones and walk in newness of life by God's spirit. So if you've been dead, dead tired, dead in your transgressions, if you've been lost in a way, in exile, come. Come back to life. Rise up. You've been raised from your grave. Come be a part of, the, of this everlasting life given to us in the Spirit. And, and, and then after that, like most, most times when people talk about the good news, it's to get you there. It's to get you in that baptismal tank, which is amazing and a sign of this new Spirit life that you've been raised to. Then after that, the rest of your life, the rest of your eternal life is going to be spent coming, imagining with us all what this hope-filled, peaceable life in Christ can be like and helping to build it together, helping to be built into by the Spirit. You guys pray with me. Uh, Father, feel like that that invitation needs to be re- repeated that, that you've invited us to come um, to come and receive your spirit and to get hope when we feel like our hope has perished and for those of us who have done that and who are alive who are awakened to your life in this world You ask us to come and imagine with you um, what this kingdom would be like, what it is like, and what our place in this world is in that kingdom. You've you've given us these wild images of, of dry bones turning into an army of living, breathing people responsive to you. You've given us this vision of of a zoo that seems to have gone so wrong, but you're telling us is so right. Uh, use those 
vivid images to shake up our imaginations and then to call us to action with each other, to open us out to you and your work, to open us out to each other, to make us not fearful, uh, to make us durable so that we can hear words from your prophets and be challenged and, and repent and change our lives. That if we've been used to being prey, that we can, without fear of, of being hurt or triggered, come um, and participate in this new thing that you're doing. If we've been predators, that you might, that, that you might strip, us, strip us down of that violence and make us new. We thank you for this word that is so alive, so beautiful, so challenging. And we thank you uh, for Jesus, your word made flesh. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.